Welcome. We're back in John's Gospel again this week. And I'm going to read uh, to you from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. You may well recognise these verses. If you've got a Bible, why don't you follow along? Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, "Um, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. "Um, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they'd all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is come to the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, the disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. These are famous verses. Famous in the sense that the events that they describe have been historically very well known. The feeding of the 5,000. Now it's probably more than that. At this time in a crowd you only counted the men. That's not right, obviously. And this is a cultural note given by John. He's not looking to diminish women and children, but rather to elevate the magnitude of the miracle. It's not just 5,000 people, it's 5,000 men, which means, what were there, 8, 9, 10, 15, who knows? This is the only miracle, with the exception of the resurrection of Jesus, that's recorded in all four Gospels. You'll find it in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and here in John 6. In three of the Gospels, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is then followed by the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And remember, John is recording certain events because he is trying to reveal to us who Jesus is, who we are called to be in Christ, and what difference that should make to our daily life. So we're going to work through these verses, verse by verse, or in groups of verses, and ask those questions. What does this reveal to us about Christ? What do we learn about how we should live our lives? 
So John starts, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. This lake had different uh, titles depending on your culture and sometimes depending on where around the lake you lived. Jesus, John doesn't tell us exactly when this happens, but it's clear it's after a time of ministry. It's after a time of healing. It's after a time of opposition. In the other accounts, the gospel writers tell us Jesus is actually trying to escape the crowd. He's trying to get a bit of time on his own, a bit of time just with his close friends. And John's reminding us that Jesus is fully human. He has need of rest and recuperation. He needs to sit down. He needs a bit of time just with his near friends. And that's true of us, friends. Yeah, we, we need to recognise we're not superhuman. We often live very busy lives and forget to rest. Here is Jesus modelling for us in his humanity, rest, Sabbath, relax, restore. Jesus is trying to do that. John reminds us that the Passover is near. Well, why does he do that? If he, if he just says at some time, if he's not looking to try and set it at a certain moment, why mention the Passover well, because he wants us to constantly hold intention, Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divine calling. Remember, this Jesus is the Passover lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John will describe in coming chapters that they will have a final, a final Passover meal when Jesus will break bread and share it amongst them. And here he is about to break bread. This miracle of bread breaking points to that miracle. Remember, signs and wonders are meant to be a sign and a wonder. They're meant to point to something and make us wonder about the true meaning. John tells us Jesus looks up and sees the crowd. Maybe he's been sleeping. Maybe he's just been, you know, head to head with some of the disciples sharing a laugh, a joke or some teaching. He lifts his head. Oh, <laughs> the crowd are here. Clearly some of the crowd have already arrived because we know there's a small boy with a packed lunch. And so Jesus, in compassion, sees them. And he asks a question. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat, he asks. Now remember, when God asks the question, when Jesus asks the question, it's not that he doesn't know the answer. When God asks questions, it's not for his benefit. When God says to Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know. He wants them to know. When God asks us questions through scripture, when God challenges us through scripture, when God asks us a question through a prophetic word, it's because he wants us to pause, he wants us to stop, he wants us to think, he wants us to ask that question. So Jesus asked this question, where will we get food? He's asking his disciples, where will you get food? What really counts? What will really sustain? He wants them to see his compassion. He wants his compassion for the people to filter into and flow out of these disciples. He wants the same for us. That we see the compassion of God and it stirs in us compassion for others. 
Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I love the way Philip goes straight to the maths. Maybe he had an accountancy background. Who knows? Forget the fact there isn't a bakery in sight. They just don't have the cash. Andrew chimes in. Uh, here is a boy with a five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go? Maybe he's already done a deal with the boy. Maybe Andrew thought, oh, I'm a bit peckish. Or, oh, I see that boy there. So hey, do you want to share your lunch with me? I like to think like that about Scripture. I'd encourage you to know. These are real men and women really engaging in conversation. Jesus receives what the small boy is given. Remember this point, friends. Jesus receives what we give him and does miracles with it. Never think what you have is too little. Never think your prayer, your worship, your gift, your act of service is too little. When it's given to God, oh, what can he do with that? So Jesus takes the boys' packed lunch. He thanks his Father in heaven. A great, again, great modelling by Christ. Thankfulness. Gratitude expressed. In his humanity, he thanks God. In his divinity, he knows what God is going to do. Sometimes people look at this passage and try to explain it away. I've read commentaries that say, actually, this passage is all about the generosity of the boy. Here's a, here's a small boy with his lunch, and isn't it amazing how generous he's been? And What happened was other people saw his generosity and thought, oh, yes, actually, I have brought something for lunch, and maybe I could share it with my neighbour. And actually, this is a miracle of generosity, that Jesus is trying to teach us not to be selfish, and that those who have much should share with those who have little. Now, let's be clear, that is a biblical principle. That is something Jesus teaches us. That is something that scripture teaches us. The prophets in the Old Testament are constantly challenging us, those of us who have much, to be generous. That we should share with those who have little. That we should live a more simple life that others can simply live. We absolutely should be sharing our food, our time, our money and our resource with those in need. Absolutely. But that's not what this miracle is about. This miracle is a miracle. And I know that because if the, if the gospel writers had wanted us to be thinking about generosity here, they would have talked about generosity. They do it elsewhere. But they don't. They record the miracle. They record that Jesus takes what is very little, prays over it, and hands it out person by person. Jesus meets their need. Sometimes we can think that the mundanities of life are beneath God. That we should only pray prayers, big prayers. And it's good to pray big prayers about breakthrough and power and salvation and revival. Let's keep doing that. But what does the Lord's Prayer encourage us to pray for? Our daily bread. The mundane, the necessary, the immediate. What is God showing us here? He's showing us that he is a God of the immediate and the mundane. 
He's showing us that it's not beneath the creator of the heavens and the earth to take five loaves and two fish and make sure no one goes hungry. See, Jesus could have sent them away. They may have been hungry, but they weren't starving. They, they could have gone away. They could have missed a meal. But Jesus says, no, I want to bless you. Friends, don't despise the moments when God meets your felt need. Don't get locked in your felt need. That's selfish, selfishness. But don't despise those moments when God meets the mundane prayer exactly as you prayed it. But this miracle also reveals the power of God and the divinity of Christ. Food is created. I mean, yes, there's some administration here. You know, sit down on the grass, get yourselves comfortable. In, in one of the other Gospels, we're told they broke down into groups of 50. So there's some beautiful project management, which I admire. But then Jesus breaks bread and starts handing it out. I can only imagine that it was take a bit and pass it on. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those bring and share lunches or buffets or weddings where you, you go to the table and you look at what's there and you think, how much do I take? Sometimes it's always good to go towards the end because then you think, oh, lots of people have eaten already, I'd help myself. Sometimes that's a risk. What did they do here? The first people, oh, okay, I'll, I've got one barley loaf that's been broken into four. I've got a quarter of a barley loaf. Okay, I'll break a bit off. And then as I hand it away, the bit in my hand is now bigger than it was before. <sighs> wow. I can imagine that not only did the food ripple out, but the amazement rippled out. By the time you were person 1,000 or person 2,000, you knew however much you took, there was going to be more. What an amazing miracle. No wonder they all record it, all gospel writers. People must have talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. Were you there? Were you there? Were you there? I'd imagine by the time everybody who said they were there had been there, that'd be 30,000 people. It was a miracle of creativity. It's a reminder that this Jesus is the God who created stars. As ever with John, the meaning is layered one layer upon another because the theological significance of this miracle would not have been missed by the Jewish crowd eagerly awaiting a Messiah. You see, they were waiting for the one their prophets had told them about. Their prophets had said, one is coming who is greater than Moses. And what had Moses done? Provided bread for a hungry crowd. For a people who are hungry in the wilderness, God through Moses said, there'll be manna, there'll be bread every day. The people of God have been hungry in the wilderness. These people are now hungry in the wilderness. And what does Jesus do? Provide bread. But not only bread, also fish. And where manna was not to be gathered, what happens here? No, you can gather. Twelve baskets. I love that detail. Every disciple got to take a basket home. Every disciple. What is this saying to those first people, those first followers, those people who sat there on the grass and ate? Here's one who is greater than Moses. This is the Messiah. 
Again, what is John trying to do? Reveal who Jesus is so that we discover who we are. How do I know some of them thought maybe this is the Messiah? Because John tells us. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Amazing. Goes on to say, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And we know that John, in his gospel, does not waste words, and so verse 15 is no filler verse. Jesus knows the thoughts of men because he's God. Jesus knows his time is not yet come. This is not the moment for a public proclamation or profile. Indeed, Jesus knows it, is ne- it will never be the role of men to raise him up and put him on a throne. That is the prerogative of his heavenly father and him alone. There will be a throne. He will be declared king, but not this side of the cross. The other side of the cross. The other side of the empty tomb. The other side of the ascension. Jesus is not allowing men to elevate him or put him on a pedestal. That's the role of the Father. Jesus is divine. He knows these things. But he's also fully man. He needs solitude. He needs rest. He needs time with the Father. So he withdraws again for some time alone. Again, Jesus is our perfect model here. Friends, we need time with God. Not as some religious activity, but as a relational necessity for our own good, for our own well-being, for our identity. We must take time to withdraw and spend time with our Father. God will raise our profile if and when he needs to. Depending on the season we're in, we might only be able to grab a few minutes. If you're caring for small children, incredibly busy at work, looking after elderly parents, going through a really tough season, you might be snatching a few moments here and there. But make sure you snatch them. Make sure you grab them. The story is told of Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles Wesley, who had 18 children and lived in a two-room house. But she needed time with Jesus. And so she would sit on a chair, take her apron, put her apron over her head, and create this little space away from the crowd. Sometimes we have to snatch moments like that. Sometimes we have the freedom to have half an hour, an hour, two hours. Your season of life will change, friends, but make sure you grab time with the Father to hear his voice, to reset your identity, to recalibrate your vision, to be reminded that you're loved because you're loved. And then we end our passage with this account of Jesus walking on the water. The disciples go down into the lake. They row hard. It's hard work. It's dark. Jesus is not with them. A strong wind is blowing. The waters get rough. And then they see Jesus approaching the boat. Both Matthew and Mark do follow the feeding of the 5,000 with this account. John's account is briefer than those in the other Gospels. Gospels. 
Whilst John is always keen to maintain the humanity of Christ, he never wants us to lose sight of his divinity. Jesus is God. And as such, he is sovereign over the wind and the waves. Where the disciples in the boat have been battling the water, Jesus walks across it. Where they have the wind in their faces, Jesus commands the wind to be at his back. John is reminding us that God is sovereign over all creation. All creation exists to give glory to God. And here is this water and this air encountering God, the Son of God, the Messiah. Some have suggested that what to the disciples seemed like rough water and a harsh wind was just the wind and the waves trying to worship. I like that idea. What do we learn? Well, we could apply this encounter to remind us that Jesus is with us in the storms of life. And that is true. In this life you will have trouble, Jesus said. There are storms, there are high waves, there can be times when we think we're going to be overcome and overwhelmed. And this narrative does remind us that Jesus steps into the boat, that Jesus is with us. But possibly what, God wants, what John wants us to remember here is that God is awesome. God is not to be treated flippantly. God is our saviour in the boat, but he is also totally worthy of our worship, our adoration and our praise. In Christ, God has stooped into my world. He has become flesh and blood like me to understand my flesh and blood, to help me understand my flesh and blood, to be with me in these storms, to call me friend and brother, to make God approachable and intimate, to give me total freedom just to come into the presence of God just as I am. Jesus does all that for me and for you, for us. But John here reminds us he is also awesome. The disciples see him and are afraid. This isn't a phobia. This is awe. This is them realising, gosh, they've seen him heal the sick. They've listened to incredible words of teaching. They've just seen him feed over 5,000 people. They've seen miracles, but now they see him. They see the face of God. And they're in awe. They are in fear. Whilst they delight in the friendship of God, they reflect on the magnitude of God. And John is encouraging us to do the same. Whilst delighting in the friendship of God, he's reminding us it's also good to reflect on the magnitude of God. The God who governs the waves and the winds. The intimate God, but the awesome God. The God revealed in the book of Job through these words. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans? 
with words without knowledge, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning angels sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from its womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far may you come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Then it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? John is reminding us, friends, we can come close to God. But God is also worthy of our worship and our praise and our adoration. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. You are the God who meets our mundane needs on a daily basis. But you are also the God who lifts our head and reminds us of your glory and your power and your might. Lord, would you help us this week to meet you in the mundane, to seek you for the miraculous and to give you the praise and worship you deserve. Amen.